Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're very glad that you are here. This is a free spiritual community dedicated to the search for truth and meaning. We welcome people of all religious backgrounds, all ethnic backgrounds, skin colors, socioeconomic backgrounds, political affiliations, we're working on that one, and abilities and other circumstances. We come from a religious heritage that speaks of the divine spark inside every person. And it is in the stream of that heritage that I stand when I ask you to greet the holy in your midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Will you please say our chalice lighting words together with me? In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are people who want crops without plowing, plowing up the ground. They want rain without lightning and thunder. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its waters. This, this struggle may be a moral one, or it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Find out what people will submit to, and you have found out the exact amount of injustice which will be imposed upon them. The limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they profess. Say with me the words of our mission statement, printed in your bulletin, and the writing on the wall. At UU, First UU Church of Austin, we gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Good morning. I'm Beverly Donahue, and uh, this morning I have the pleasure of introducing Mr. Tom Spencer, who will speak to us about Interfaith Action of Central Texas, which is the January recipient for the monthly special offering. There's so much that IACT has done and ways that we've been involved in it, and uh, it's really a pleasure to have Tom Spencer here this morning. Good morning, everybody. It's, a, it's always a pleasure to be in this community, so thank you for the invitation. Uh, it, it, I, I love uh, coming to UU churches. The spirit that fills these halls is just terrific, and I love the, the way that you go about your searches uh, communally. Uh, uh, it's just uh, inspiration. Um, I'm going to talk very briefly about Interfaith Action in Central Texas. Um, when I when I when I talk about our work of building healthy, respectful relationships between the faith traditions, because that's our main priority, to build those relationships. One of the first things I always say is that um, that it's an imperative that we do this work. Most 
faith communities tend to think of interfaith work as being something nice to do. But we think of it in these days as being essential. And uh, the reason for that is very evident. Any serious consideration of the threats to our children's future has to take into account interfaith conflict. That's just the world that we live in in the 21st century. And this is work that can't be done only in world capitals like Tel Aviv or uh, Cairo or London or places like that. It has to take place right here in our own backyard. Austin is an incredibly diverse religious community with uh, uh, seven different mosques now operating in our community, uh, many different sanctuaries for the Hindu community, uh, you name it. The world has indeed come to Austin. And we need to do the work of breaking down isolation and building healthy relationships. The way that interfaith action does that is stated right in our mission statement. Interfaith action uh, cultivates, and I like that word, cultivates peace and respect through interfaith dialogue, service, and celebration. I just want to focus just for one minute on that uh, service piece. Uh, Beverly referenced hands-on housing. This is a 23-year program that has now repaired 1,350 homes in East Austin. The people who live in our homes uh, are at 30% of median family income. What that means is that there's about $13,000 of income in that household. Now, most of our clients are, are also, uh, we, we target senior citizens. So these are, for the most part, widows living in isolation. Their husbands are gone. The homes are falling down around their ears. They don't want to live anywhere else, but they are facing often threats of condemnation because of the state of their home. We are able, through uh, the teams that come to us, through this community and others, to repair these homes and keep them safe and to keep the people in the places that they love where their stories are, where their families are. The most beautiful expression of, of hands-on housing is when we have interfaith teams. And one tradition that you may be surprised to hear of, has been going on now for over six years, is a joint Jewish-Muslim day, where teams of folks from the Muslim community and the Jewish community get together, and they've been doing this now repeatedly for six years, and they work on a home. I just want to share one moment in time with you from one of those experiences with the Jewish and Muslim community. It was a, an older home in deep East Austin. There was a lady who had been living in that home for 40 years. Her husband was gone. Uh, it was a rambling old home, wooden, needed lots of work. And the team attacked this vigorously, made significant improvements to the home. And we were taking a lunch break when this little moment occurred. What we do often on the interfaith days is we gather pe the people together so they can really talk to one another. And we formed a circle in this lady's backyard. It was one of these magnificent, deep East Austin backyards with giant pecan trees. And one by one, each person replied to a single question, why are you here? And each voice with many different accents said, I'm here because my God calls me to treat others compassionately. I'm here because somebody treated me with kindness once. I am here because of this. I am here because of that. It was very powerful. One voice at a time going around the circle. 
We were just concluding the circle and about to get back to work when the homeowner, who had been watching this whole thing off to the side, raised her hand and she said, do you mind if I say a few words? And of course, everybody welcomed her into the center of the circle and she stepped in and looked at that circle of people around her and she just kind of you know, turned around and looked at everybody in the eye. She said, you know, I've lived in this home for 40 years and I never imagined something so beautiful taking place in my backyard. Now that's the power of compassion. It's the power of compassion in action. And that's why we changed our name recently to Interfaith Action. Because this work needs to be expressed through communities and through individual action. And we are so fortunate that we have had you as part of the team for the entire history of Hands-On Housing. One of the great challenges we face this year is that Hands-On Housing, when I came on board, had zero dollars in underwriting support. Well, I'm very proud to say that thanks to a partnership with the city of Austin and thanks to the people of Austin and foundations and others, last year we had $400,000 in support for this program. And we were able to do much more profound things for our homeowners, like replace roofs, not just paint, but replace roofs, fix leaking gas lines, things like that. However, the money that we've been depending on for the past couple of years is disappearing starting October 1. Uh, we're, it's going to be a, uh, another, money comes from general obligation bonds passed by the city for affordable housing. We're going to have another election in November. I hope that you will support that. Uh, in the meantime, we're making an appeal to all of our communities to help us because we anticipate at least a six-month gap where we'll have no money coming in from what is now represents 75% of the budget of this program. So every a dollar counts. We hope that you'll stand with us this year as we fill that gap and expand our services to these very deserving, beautiful ladies that we, we serve through Hands on Housing. Thank you so much for uh, the opportunity to speak to you today. Congratulations on uh, your new pastor. I look forward to next week and the installation. Uh, and thank you for the invitation today. We must sit down and reason together. Perhaps we should sit in the dark. In the dark, we could utter our feelings. In the dark, we could propose and describe and suggest. In the dark, we could not see who speaks, and only the words would say what they say. No one would speak more than twice. No one would speak less than once. Thus saying what we feel and what we want, what we fear for ourselves and each other into the dark. Perhaps we could begin to begin to listen. The women must learn to dare to speak. The men must learn to bother to listen. The women must learn to say, I think this is so. The men must learn to stop dancing solos on the ceiling. After each speaks, he or he will say a ritual phrase, 
It is not I who speaks, but the wind. Wind blows through me. Long after me is the wind. I've been doing a sermon series on our seven principles. I'm up to the one that says we affirm and promote the right of conscience and the democratic process. E.B. White says, democracy is the recurrent suspicion that more than half the people are right more than half the time. William Fulbright says, in a democracy, dissent is an act of faith. Howard Winters says, civilization is the process in which one gradually increases the number of people included in the term we or us, and at the same time decreases those labeled you or them until that category has no one left in it. Our seven principles are not a creed, they're not something that we have to toe the line on, but they are, to use a Quaker phrase, a sense of the group. They're our sense of the group that these are things that we all agree on, these are things that we all can put our energy and faith and heart and mind and time and treasure into promoting and affirming. And so our principle not only asks us to affirm and promote the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations, but also in society at large. So we run our congregations democratically. This is uh, um, one of the most American of all denominations in the way that we run our churches. Our roots are in the New England, our American roots are in the New England uh, system of town meetings. And so um, most Unitarian Universalists, when they think of democracy, they think of a town meeting where really some churches still, the very, very small ones, will gather a congregational meeting just to say, should we paint new stripes on the parking lot? Yes or no? And should they be diagonal or straight? Um, this congregation is of a size where you have decided to have more of a representative democracy, so you, you elect your board in a congregational meeting. Most congregations have an annual meeting. This congregation has two, um, which is fine, of course. Um, you call your minister, you pass a budget, you elect your board members who represent your interests as they articulate the goals of the congregation that, that we're all supposed to be going toward. And if you don't like the way this board does it, then you elect another board. You, you vote some more people in. Democracy works best when people in the church trust the process. Um, but, you know, Unitarian Universalists are, uh, we're a cranky lot, and um, we don't trust our country's government, and why should we? Um, many politicians are very lovely, good government people, and um, many have uh, fallen victim to corruption. I say victim, that's the nicest way to put it, um, to one degree or another. And so we, uh, we have those same feelings about our own government. Some churches, uh, the people will say, oh, it's the rich people that run this congregation. 
Uh, other people say, oh, it's the retired people. They just have more time and they can do it. Um, I, I think I've told you the story about my minister friend who was approached by two very irate members saying, we knew it. We knew all along that there was a core committee that ran this place. And he said, what? A core committee? Don't play dumb, they said. We heard you talking with Martha and Ethel after the service last week about the core committee and, and whether you were going to decide to hang the stained glass thing behind the pulpit. We knew, we knew that there was a core committee. And he was like, Martha and Ethel, stained glass. Oh, the decor committee. We're just like that, but we muddle along. And I wish I could kind of stop there and just talk about democracy within our congregations because it would be fun and um, interesting for me anyway. But uh, I want to talk about democracy in our nation as well because that's what we are called to affirm and promote too. And so I want to talk about uh we always say democracy would work best with an educated populace. Well, yes, and pigs would fly best if they had wings. But we work with what we have. And as Winston Churchill says, democracy is the worst form of government ever except for all the others. So, again, in our nation, we muddle through with what we've got. But here are a couple or three obstacles to democracy that I think we as Unitarian Universalists can work on some more. We've been working on them for a while. One, and this is um, on the anniversary of the shooting of, of Congresswoman Giffords uh, by a, a guy who listened to a lot of talk radio. The Fairness Doctrine is a law that was put into place in 1949, and it said that any radio, TV, or newspaper coverage of the news had to be fair. It had to show both sides. So any newspaper person who was writing a story about something or other had to find voices on this side and voices on that side in order to balance the coverage. All the TV people, all the radio people had to find voices on this side and voices on that side and maybe third or fourth sides of any kind of news story or conflict in order to comply with the Federal Communications Commission's Fairness Doctrine. Well, 1987, under the Reagan administration, the Communications Commission abolished the Fairness Doctrine by a 4-0 vote. 1988, Rush Limbaugh got, got on the air. And right-wing talk radio and left-wing talk radio got started. Nobody had to find the voices on the other side anymore. So you have this constant stream of, for lack of a better uh, way to talk about it, red stations and blue stations, and you had people listening and watching uh, red TV and blue TV. Um, you had red facts and blue facts, and everyone on the red side and on the blue side thought the other was misguided and, and nuts because nobody ever heard the other side. Does that make sense? Okay. So there are people, and um, it was especially after Gabby Gifford's shooting that this uh, took on a lot more energy in the legislature, people who want to reestablish the Fairness Doctrine, but um, for some reason the talk radio people are really against it. 
Another obstacle, I think, to democracy is what we have done with um, making corporations people under the law. We have a government by the people, for the people. Um, I have got nothing against corporations. Many of them are benign. Many of them do a lot of good. I'm not against corporations per se. However, um, and this is from an article that uh, the UU World magazine ran in 2003. Tom Stites was the um, editor and the author of this. He says, corporations gained personhood through some really aggressive court maneuvers, culminating in the 1986 Supreme Court case, Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific. Until then, only people were protected by the Bill of Rights. And now, corporations were protected by the Bill of Rights. So, um, government uh, ability to regulate corporations um, was severely hampered by this Bill of Rights applying to corporations. They got... Fourth Amendment safeguards against warrantless regulatory searches. They got Fifth Amendment double jeopardy protection. They got Sixth Amendment right to trial by jury. So, on the surface, when big corporations and individuals have the same rights, they're equal, and it's a level playing field, right? But corporations are usually richer than people. And corporations, because they're not a person, they don't have a moral compass necessarily. Some people don't, but that's another sermon. Corporations don't have a conscience. You can't have an organization with a conscience. A conscience is an individual thing. So, okay, you have regular individuals and people who are protected by the Bill of Rights, and then you have these beings that are very wealthy. Um, in 2009, 51 of the world's largest economies were corporations. Walmart has a bigger economy than Sweden. So, more assets than Sweden. So, you have this person who doesn't die, ever. You have a person who kind of has no conscience. You have a person who has huge amounts of money, and they are working to get things done in government like human individuals are getting working to get things done in government. It's just not fair. You know, because we don't have infinite amounts of money, most of us, and we don't, we die. And we have consciences. And our highest value promised to our supporters is not to make money. Okay. So that is a strange situation for us to be in, in terms of democracy, when we're lobbying to get our values expressed in the marketplace, and these corporations who have huge amounts of money, who don't die, don't have consciences necessarily, are lobbying to get their interests, which is making money, um, underwritten by the government, supported by government law. One lawyer said... Uh, Corporations have been enthroned, and an era of corruption in high places will follow, and money, the money power of the country will endeavor to prolong its reign 
by working upon the prejudices of the people until all wealth is aggregated in a few hands and the republic is destroyed. What kind of lawyer would say something like that? Abraham Lincoln. Another issue, and I won't spend too long on this because we just have 10 minutes. Um, another issue is electronic voting machines. There are people who say we're going to have electronic voting machines. Now computers are going to count our votes. And you can trust computers, so we don't need any paper verification. There is a Unitarian Universalist woman who's um, named Teresa Hommel. She's worked in the computer industry since 1967, and she's got this old dog and pony show, or really a computer and paper ballot show, that she takes around to different places, showing them how you can cheat using computers, how you can steal elections. And you use around the country are trying to make legislation happen where the person who is a state chair of the political party cannot also chair the board of elections, looking at, looking at fair elections in that state. And I do not want you to hear me say that Republicans steal elections, because they do, but Democrats do too. Let's not be naive. Democrats and Republicans, there's not a nickel's worth of difference among them when it comes to stealing elections. I grew up in Philadelphia. And so, um, I like for my sermons to have to do with church and not just politics. So this one does in this basic way. Number one, it's about our principle, about the democratic process. Number two, I was reading a book by Jean Sharp, who's a scholar at the Albert Einstein Institute in Boston. And he wrote this tiny little book that has caused havoc around the world. And it's called From Dictatorship to Democracy. You should read it. It's fabulous. He was asked by some people from uh, Myanmar to write just a general book. Well, he, they, he was asked to write a book for them about how to overthrow their dictator. But he said there are lots of dictators and there are lots of people, and I wouldn't presume to know that much about Myanmar. So I'm just going to write a general little treatise about how to overthrow a dictator. And lo, he did. And it's fascinating, and I think there's a sermon in it because, to me, the Unitarian Universalist Church and other churches like us, dictatorship-proof our people. We train our people in freedom. We train our people in democracy. The first thing a dictator will do, he says, is dismantle the churches, clubs, and other civic organizations that people belong to because they increase people's confidence and make them strong. And so I think that our church, with your help, teaching in the religious education department and having conversation amongst ourselves, I think our church helps train people in freedom because we feed the people's determination to be free. We encourage critical thinking. Any church that says question authority is helping to dictatorship-proof its people. Any church that teaches planning and organizing for justice helps dictatorship-proof its people. We strengthen our children's conscience, and we teach them to trust it. My friends, this church and churches like it, 
are performing a basic, fundamental, foundational service to the American people by making us trained for freedom, by encouraging our thirst for freedom, by celebrating our questions, by training our conscience. We're doing something good here. And by having scriptures that include poems like this one by Hafiz. We have not come to take prisoners, but to surrender ever more deeply to freedom and joy. We have not come into this exquisite world to hold ourselves hostage from love. Run, my dear, from anything that may not strengthen your precious budding wings. Run like hell, my dear, from anyone likely to put a sharp knife into the sacred, tender vision of your beautiful heart. We have a duty to befriend those aspects of obedience that stand outside our house and shout to our reason, oh, please, oh, please come out and play. For we have not come here to take prisoners or to confine our wondrous spirits, but to experience ever and ever more deeply our divine courage, freedom, and light. Our benediction is a song that I've taught you before. I sing it. You sing the line back to me. The words are, you may be one last spark we all need to light the whole world. You may be one last spark we all, need we all need to light the whole world. We sing it to ourselves. You may be one last spark. We all need to light the whole world. And now we sing it for someone we love. You may be, you may be one, last spark, one last spark. We all need, we all need to, light the whole world. to light the whole world. And now just sing it to some random person, just somebody sitting to your right or left or in front of you or behind you. Hold them in your heart and sing. I'm going to go higher because some of y'all are having trouble. <laughs> you, may be you may be one last spark, one last spark. We, all we all need to light the whole world. To light the whole world. Oh. Now we sing it for somebody we really don't like. <laughs> this is a spiritual exercise. The good news is you don't really have to mean it. You just have to be willing to do it. You may be, you may be one last spark. One last spark. We all need. We all need. To light the whole world. To light the whole world.
And now we sing it for ourselves the last time. You may be, you may be the one last spark, one last spark we, all need we all need to light the whole world. May we light the whole world. Let's light the whole world. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.